0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistonomy. My name is Uzair Yunus, and today we're going to be taking a look outside of Pakistan and assessing what's going on in India. Um, Lots of action there, both domestically and on the foreign policy side. UP, which is one of the most populous countries in the world and the most populous state in India, um, has gone to the polls. But that's not the only state. Um, States like Punjab are also headed to the polls. And uh, many are saying that this is a warm-up to the 2024 general elections, and given UP significance, um, what happens there um, will determine uh, what eventually may happen um, in Delhi uh, in the coming weeks, months, and years. Um, so to talk about all of this, both domestically and on the foreign policy side, I have uh, Pramit Palchaudhary joining me today. He's foreign editor of the Hindustan Times, and a distinguished fellow at the Ananta Aspen Center, um, he is somebody who is one of the most prominent commentators on what happens on India's domestic political and foreign policy front. So I'm really excited about this conversation and diving deep uh, with him into some of the key things that are shaping policy in India. So Pramit, thank you so much for taking out the time today, and welcome to pakistanomy
1: My pleasure. Great to be here.
0: Let's start with the domestic policy front. Of course, when we look at sort of the big headlines over the last couple of weeks, UP elections are there, but what's happening in Karnataka has been on global headlines for a number of days now. The courts are involved. Um, Lots of concern here on the Pakistani side in terms of what's going on in India. But help us understand with some nuance about what's going on, what the electoral map is, and, and what the outlook is for the political situation there.
1: So as you said, the main election, in fact, almost the only election that anybody is really paying attention to is Uttar Pradesh. Uh, because it is the largest state in the union, um, it uh, is ruled by the BJP um, and by one of the p- potential contenders uh, for a future BJP leader, uh, Yog- Yogindana, uh, Yogindana. But it's not, uh, and it's also, of course, a key test uh, for the, for the Modi government, if you wish, given that it is happening just after two years of the COVID pandemic and, and some of the most stringent economic lockdowns that any major country uh, has faced. Um, and most of the polling evidence, and I think most of us would assume, that Modi is coming out of this economic lockdown and these two years of COVID at what would probably be his weakest position since he was elected in 2014. Now, when you say weak, that's relative, obviously. Um, Most of the polling that's coming up still indicates that his approval rating is a little over 50%. But that's a sharp drop from the roughly 70 to 80% approval rating that he's tended to hold nationally uh, since he was elected. the BJP, however, retains its broad, it's roughly one-third of the electorate support that it's traditionally had. Uh, but it's going to go into UP in a in a much more difficult position than it's than it's had before.
0: Help us understand like what what sort of is the strategy there for the BJP and for the oppositions at a higher level in UP? Like what are they? sort of what's the government saying, why vote for us again, and why is um, sort of the opposition, or what is the opposition's pitch to the voters saying, hey, this is not the right party to be voting for, come to our side. And I'm seeing similar things, for example, in Punjab, where Modi was there today, he was making speeches, Ahmadmi party has had a resurgence or has found a holding there in Punjab. So just sketch us out what the debate looks like um, in these key states.
1: So, Uttar Pradesh, the question really is, is going to be a test of the social coalition, the electoral coalition that Modi has been able to stitch together uh, since he's come to power um, and is the basis of his remarkable political strength uh, in India today. Um, where there he's combined the BJP, the Bharata Janata Party, which is, he, which is a Hindu Conservative party, right-wing party, but which traditionally been owned, dominated by or tends to get its support from the upper caste Hindus, uh, but who constitute too small a group to be electorally sufficient to win an election. So he's been able to spread the build up a broad, broader coalition, uh, of which the most important segment is the so-called OBCs, the other backward castes, who are, should we say, lower-middle caste Hindus. The lower-middle, these group, the OBCs, which is actually several hundred different castes scattered around the country, uh, he's, which have been coalescing over the past few decad- decades into some sort of a political force, largely represented in, in uh, regional parties, uh, like the primary opposition party in UP, the Samajwadi Party. But Yogi, uh, this uh, Modi is the first BJP leader uh, and only the second Indian prime minister, I think, to be from the OBCs. And so he's now been able to win over a large portion, roughly about 50 percent of the OBCs. But since they represent somewhere between 45 to 50 percent of the population, that's an enormous group that has been added to the BJP coalition under him. And he's been able to reach out even to pick up some of the Dalits, the lowest caste Hindus. And he's probably getting about 25 to 30 percent of those, depending on which poll you're reading. So you put that together and he's got a formidable coalition, uh, much bigger than anything the BJP has ever been able to put together and much larger than any other party uh, right now is able, uh, able to field. And he's combined that. He's now it's a difficult coalition. These are groups of people who traditionally don't vote together uh, or see eye to eye on many things, and are socially often, uh, often, uh, uh, if you wish, in conflict with each other. Um, while there has been a lot of focus on Hindu-Muslim violence, the fact is that intra-caste, caste violence among Hindus is still far greater uh, in terms of numbers, casualties, and so on. Fifty to sixty percent of all of the so-called hate crimes in India are largely inter-caste battles. Um, so traditionally, these castes don't get along. Got to get along. Wall at all. But he's been able to put that together, and he's combined it with the Hindus for ideology, which argues that there is a Hindu identity, if you wish, that supersedes all of these castes barriers. And one thing I think is very clear about Modi in his actions and in his speeches is that he has tried to push the case against caste. He doesn't support it. He doesn't think it's a great idea. And many of his own actions have been designed to empower uh, both lower castes um, and try to develop or promote versions of Hinduism, um, which basically are try to ride above uh, Cost identity with limited success, but it's still very remarkable. Um, and then combining that uh, with uh, welfare policy, uh, and this is many ways his most successful political uh, pro- uh, programs have been to generate, uh, re- we'll say reinvigorate using digital biometrics, for example, uh, the entire welfare structure that India has, it's not a great one, but he's really massively improved on it. Um, so whether it's targeting uh, among the poor, removing corruption within the welfare system, he's introduced the beginnings of a universal healthcare system, he's expanded the number of people who have access to toilets, who have uh, drinking water uh, access, the list goes on and on. It's actually quite amazing now uh, what uh, he has done. And if you look at a lot of the polls that come out, somewhere between 40 to 50% of the people who say they vote for him do so largely because of his welfare programs. Um, And that's definitely the core of his support among the poorer OBCs, uh, as well as the Dalits. Um, So this, when he goes into the UP election, however, because of the lockdowns, the economic lockdowns induced by COVID, Um, and other economic policies that he has done earlier, notably demonetization, a lot of this class of people have suffered the most, as you would expect. They're the ones who lost their jobs. They're the ones who depended upon low-end services um, and so on for survival. Um, They have come out the worst uh, from this pandemic, Um, and therefore their support now for... The GOV for the BJP and for Modi is clearly much weaker than it was in the beginning, uh, before the pandemic was uh, had happened. So the test, if you wish, in UP is can he hold, can the BJP hold that election together, uh, that coalition together, and come through? Um, and I think, uh, so they're combining, they're, they're actually still continuing very much, I, I would argue, a very similar kind of narrative that uh, we held we were able to get through the COVID crisis. We are still the party of, of modern welfare, if you wish, in India, but we also combine that uh, with, a, uh, with a strong sense of Hindu ideology um, and nationalism. Plus Modi's personal popularity continues to be almost doubled out of his own party. So, that remains, in many ways, one of their strongest cards. But whether that translates into a victory at a state election, because the state elections don't necessarily follow the national elections. Uh, and in India, in fact, the divergence between the two has been growing over the past 20 years, uh, is still to be seen. But it will still be seen as a barometer of whether that BJP social coalition can, can stay together. Uh, Will has survived the COVID pandemic.
0: I think you mentioned a couple of things that, that struck out to me. Uh, one on the welfare program, right? I remember reading um, stories, for example, about how biometric identity was tied to soil health cards under the Modi government, and then fertilizer subsidies were dispersed through that digitization. I think uh, many of us uh, who followed South Asia's sort of subsidy programs are familiar with how in particular farmer subsidies and fertilizer subsidies have been used to you know grease the patronage sort of system and to me that struck out as amazing what he was trying to do and yes there were criticisms about Lack of biometric identification for farmers because their fingerprints are not great, etc. But the ambition has been amazing. Um, and the second one that stood out to me was the zero balanced balance bank accounts and the fact that then that with UPI and the Jam Trinity, so to speak, uh, that's called it's been transformative um, in terms of what it's done in India. So that sort of resonates why you know at least at some level people say you know set aside all the right-wing Hindutva stuff, it benefits people at the margins and their lives transform, and probably that's drawing a lot of the big tent coalition that that you sketched out that Modi's built for himself. But the other thing that struck out to me is, is, and I would love your thoughts on this, is Modi's two times more popular than his party, which means that as you look towards 2024, Um, you know, he has to be sort of on the ticket if the BJP has to have a big shot at sort of coming back to power. But he's running into the retirement age limit that he set for himself, right? And when he came to power, that was his way to clear out the old guard. And then secondly, a win in UP sort of raises the stature of Yogi Adityanath as the competitor or the successor um, to Modi himself. How do you see this playing out sort of this, politicking inside of the BJP and the fact that Modi's getting older, technically under the law of the BJP, he has to retire. But if he does retire, A, the party may not be as popular, but B, Yogi as a contender for the national elections, you know, will create a lot more problems, at least from my perspective on the Indian political scene.
1: Yeah, I think the, there was talk that Modi would retire, was, would consider retiring after he finished his second term. Um, and he was building an ashram, I think reports that he was building an ashram up in the Himalayas in preparation, and that he would take uh, the, a monk's vow. Because in many ways, if you look at his earlier life, uh, Modi, if you want to put it this way, he's a failed monk. He tried twice to be a, a, a join a monastery uh, and, and could not join the monastic order, um, uh, and uh, that he tried very hard to be for four years. And it was only after that that he turned to politics. Uh, and he still seems to retain a belief that that's what he should, he should eventually, that's his final uh, destination, is to go back to being that. But now we've seen that disappear. That talk is now, that buzz has, if you wish, disappeared. And the word is that having wasted, if you wish, two years of his second term because of COVID, where he could not actually do very much other than fight the pandemic, uh, he feels that he has to continue uh, to complete um, what he's been trying to do in terms of both transforming the the social structure uh, of, of the political elite system, removing, if you wish, the Delhi uh, establishment or, or pushing out the Delhi establishment that he um, feels held tried to hold him back, um, bring in a strong that sense of of a modern Hindu Hinduism, uh, Hindu politics into the country and also carry out the kind of reforms that we've just mentioned uh, in, on both the welfare side, but even on the corporate side, that the economy must be driven by the private sector, not by state-owned enterprises, um, that there should be reform of a huge number of reforms in finance, and that sh- India must establish a modern manufacturing cent- uh, base, which that it still lacks uh, or is, is still very small. Um, a lot of whole whole host of things that he has in the back of his mind that has to be done. So I think he, I think as you said, he introduced that rule on age limits, and I suspect he'll take it away. Uh, it wouldn't be too hard for him. For the the party knows very well that without him, they will struggle um, to to have at least a kind of absolute majority. They may still emerge as a single largest party, but they would definitely not get an absolute majority. In. In uh, in the next state in the next general elections, well, I wouldn't say absolutely, but I think very unlikely, uh, given that their their vote share would then automatically drop by about ten percentage points. Um, so. Yes, I think that his his return in the next general elections is, is that he will be campaigning uh, will and he will be the prime ministerial candidate for his party, I think is almost determined. So Yogi Adityanath is interesting because he was a person, it's hard to describe his relationship with the BJP, but it's important to realize that he is an independent political force within the BJP. So he and his base in Provincial in UP effectively had his own organization. And that while he aligned with the BJP and identified and, and campaigned and, and was elected five times as an MP uh, under the BJP ticket, he was actually quite independent of what the BJP and even the RSS, the social organization that, provides the sort of backbone uh, of the BJP ideologically and in terms of its, its um, <clears throat> highly motivated workers and, and supporters. Um, and one of the reasons it was necessary, I think, for the BJP to make him UP chief minister was, I, the word is that he threatened to leave the party. So they, look, I've been a very successful MP and I have, without me, you can't win the state because Eastern UP, I bring to the table. So I'm tired of being kept in the margins. Give me the chief minister, ministership, or I leave. So it was decided to bring him in. Um, and, and if you wish there, if so, now for him, the question is, has he grown from being a, a regional local uh, leader uh, to becoming a state leader? And then from there, he, of course, aspires to become there, and from there, a national leader. Uh, I'm not an expert in UP politics. I'm a Bengali from Calcutta. But I'd, my sense when I've talked to people is that he's still got a while to go. Uh, the first test will be, can he win the, the this coming UP election? If he d- is defeated or just scrapes through, um, his ambitions to be a national leader would be severely diminished. And so far, there's not that much evidence that he has that much... Uh, He has that much impact outside of his own state. Um, Polls would tend to say that people who think he is a potential prime minister are still at about 15%, which is about the percentage, a little less than the percentage of his own state um, in terms of population. When he campaigned recently in West Bengal, he was a disaster. Um, He really went down badly and actually probably contributed to the BJP's defeat there. Modi was popular in West Bengal, but uh, Yogi was not. Um, and there's very little evidence that he's done very well outside. A lot of the agenda that he brings uh, to the Hindutva, his version of Hindutva, if you wish, love jihad and stuff like that, hasn't really done, hasn't, he's not been able to market that outside of UP, in my view. Um, so we'll see uh, how well he does in this, in this election, I would guess the polling, the, getting the public polls that we have, and polls in India are not, not wildly accurate, um, still indicate the BJP will lose a large number of seats, but still win. But even if they win, and they win by a, a much smaller margin, uh, for Yogi, I think that would come down, that would bring his profile down. But it's also true that besides him, there are not very many second-tier BJP leaders. Um, What was once said about Nehru, that he's the great banyan tree under whom nobody else grows, which resulted in the Congress party having very few people when he eventually passed passed off the political scene, is arguably also true for the BJP.
0: Yeah, I think it will be interesting to see what that leadership sort of succession battle looks like, right? I agree that right now it's Yogi and then there isn't anybody else. And if Modi makes the decision, and I sort of lean towards your assessment on this, that he will run again, um, then Yogi has to wait. And then that Banyan tree example may be even truer, because another four or five years of Modi at the helm means that another generation sort of will go by, right? Waiting in the wings, so to speak. Um, but I, I want to switch from the domestic scene and, and, and sort of look at, what's going on on the foreign policy side. And would love to have you first sketch sort of at a 30,000 foot level, um, your view of the foreign policy view in Delhi, uh, what are the priorities and what they're looking at. Of course, in the last couple of weeks, a lot of headlines around a free trade agreement with Australia, the quad meetings happened where Foreign Minister Jay Shankar was there with Blinken and others. Um, lots of focus in terms of what goes on with China. Um, But then again, also, given the Russia-Ukraine crisis, India has had to navigate this fine line in terms of, you know, not talking much about Russia, but also being seen as closer to the U.S. So help us understand, like, how is Delhi approaching sort of this emerging geopolitical world order um, from a foreign policy point of view?
1: So I think the first point, which is really about the relationship with China, Uh, and therefore the United States, if you wish, uh, is the most important driving force uh, within the Modi government. Um, Modi spent his first six years trying to work out some sort of a modus vivendi with Xi Jinping, uh, partly based on the fact that Xi himself sent messages that he wanted a new relationship with India. Uh, They met uh, about 11 times uh, during that first six years, including two uh, so-called uh, two or three informal summits um, in Wuhan in China uh, and then down right nearby in, Ch- in Mahabalipuram in Tamil Nadu. Uh, but the end result were, was in fact, if anything, uh, a deteriorating relationship, uh, partly because China's influence in South Asia and the Indian Ocean region and India's neighborhood began to rise or has been rising. Um, and of course we then had a number of border crises, which eventually culminated in in, uh, the Galwan Valley clash between the two, in which at least 20 Indian soldiers died. And if the US and uh, Russian press are to be believed, about 35 Chinese soldiers died. So therefore, you then then started to see a complete turnaround in the India relationship. I would argue that to some element that some elements of that now uh, the, the, the all the tougher stance that India has been taking on China, had already begin begun to materialize even before Galwan, notably the restrictions on Chinese FDI. Um, but after Galwan, whoever was pre- still prepared to say, whatever groups in India was still prepared to say that we still need to work uh, with the Chinese or we still have to be wary about our relationship with the United States, basically fell silent. Um, And we saw India, therefore, begin to take pretty sweeping measures uh, against China and move uh, on a whole host of areas uh, against uh, or in in alignments which were designed to contain uh, or put pressure on China. Um, The number one measure, of course, was that this opened the door for the Quad, which until then had been hampered by two countries, really, um, Australia, and India, neither of whom were prepared to go the whole hog with the United States, if you wish. Uh, because India, it, because it believed that the Americans had already showed a strong streak of isolationism, starting with Obama, continuing with Trump. How strongly committed were they to the Asia Pacific, and are now renamed the Indo-Pacific, was questionable. Australia, because it had enormous economic convergence. Australia, China is by far the largest economic partner. With Galwan uh, and Australia for other reasons, having to do with the economic sanctions that China applied on them, you saw both of them shift to a much tougher stance in China, at which point the Quad then starts to come through. Um, as one senior US diplomat said uh, in the Trump administration, the Quad was created 80% by China. It was China's actions that resulted in the Quad coming together, otherwise the Quad would probably never really come. Now. So India now quite-
0: so, Sorry to interrupt here, which is super interesting um, in the sense that you know we hear a lot of talk about on the ASEAN side, how China plays off one country against another to sort of make sure that ASEAN doesn't come together. As a unified block to sort of you know push back against China, so this whole thing that Chinese actions on the Australian side on the economy and at the line of actual control on the border with India, um, you know, brought two big countries sort of to a point of saying, you know what, let's change our strategies and, and move towards in a different direction.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think both in both cases the the, the school that argued for. Engagement with China and maintaining a certain halfway position between the U.S. and China basically got wiped out. <clears throat> there is no such school in India left. Um, and if anything, if you see the debates in Parliament, it's basically all the all the gov parties accusing each other of being soft on China. Right? It, there is no position. Even the left parties have come out and denounced the government, saying you're you're letting China walk all over you. <clears throat> um, and and that's, that's the only policy. Yeah, I think there was,
0: was a big debate on sort of the trade numbers that came out, and that was used to criticize the BJP to say, look, that you're, you're all about rhetoric, but look at the trade and where it's that, that's headed. It. You're, you're tying ourselves you know, even closer to China and more reliant on them.
1: Well, China is the number one or number two trading partner for pretty much the entire world. Uh, and what really took place was an enormous amount of medical equipment uh, to really swung China to already our number one trading partner, uh, that, that trade deficit grew even further because of the pandemic we had to Im- Im- impose. But I think the real, for me, trade is not really a measure of very much. Um, we import at you know, different points in our history. For example, oil imports have meant that A small country like Kuwait uh, can be, or Qatar because of gas can be one of our top five trading partners, but there's actually nothing else beyond that relationship. The real measure, I think, for a long-term economic relationship is investment. That gives you a real sense, and trade will eventually follow investment uh, and technology. Uh, And Chinese trade at FDI has collapsed. It's down by 74% in the past one year. Um, and is is falling rapidly. And it's falling largely because the Indian government is not allowing Chinese companies to come in or driving them out. Um, and they are finding it a, an incredibly hostile environment uh, to operate in. Um, I should add, even on the trade figures are actually no more correct. Since I believe April last year, America is now, for the first time, India's largest trading partner. Most of that, however, is built on natural gas imports. Uh, that's massively increased it. Uh, and in some other sectors, remember, India is much more uh, competitive in service trade than it is in goods trade. We're not a great manufacturer. Um, but in service trade, China and in China is nowhere in the picture uh, for India. It is purely the United States, North America and Europe and then the Gulf, uh, which dominate our service exports.
0: So given, given this sort of, you know, realization that, you know, India must come closer along with the Quad, with the U.S. and work with the U.S. on sort of, you know, balancing against China, um, where do you see relations in the near future going? And I ask this because, as you said, like Xi and Modi met several times, and I, I'll come back to Modi's sort of broader approach to sort of engaging with leaders and saying that that might lead to some level of diplomatic breakthrough. We saw similar things um, happen, for example, in Pakistan. We'll get to that in a moment. But where do, do you see the sort of like this long-term decline in investment relations? Or is there still an opportunity for some thaw in that relationship to say, hey, look, we may not get along as much uh, with China, but we still have to work together? Or as, do you think that the voices have gone silent and they will remain silent for the foreseeable future, the ones that have been arguing for some level of engagement?
1: Well, I think the the talk of a total ban on Chinese investment is is no longer, uh, what has been happening is a much more nuanced thing, which is very similar in many ways to what the United States uh, and maybe even Japan are doing, which is that you have certain critical uh, sectors of the economy, infrastructure, high-end technology, defense, nuclear, uh, but almost anything in the digital space. Right? I, I emphasize digital and to some degree pharmaceutical space. Uh, high-end technology, the technologies that in many ways will determine where you are in the world in the 21st century. In those areas, the Chinese ban is almost 100%. There are other sectors where the Chinese, if you're Chinese, if they hold up to 25% of the equity, that's acceptable because that doesn't give them any management control and they're not on the board. Um, so a lot of firms um, are struggling with their foreign firms, in fact, who have even American firms who find that in, inside it they have a large portion of their shares are owned by Chinese funds. Um, and then there are larger sectors in the economy like automobiles or something, which are not seen as critical at all. Um, they're not that big a deal. Uh, and there India is saying that we don't actually have a problem with FDI at some point in the future. And there are some sectors you can't do without the Chinese. You can't do green vehicles. You can't do electrical vehicles without Chinese batteries because nobody else makes batteries on that scale so far. And a lot of, But a lot of what the government's Indian policies right now and their protectionism and on their trade is designed roughly to either replace the Chinese uh, imports or block Chinese imports coming in. Um, one of the most striking actions of the BJP government is deciding to walk out of RCEP uh, and that became out of a fundamental point that we will not join any multilateral or plurilateral trading body, which gives Chinese access to the mar- to the markets of India. Um, and now that's one of the reasons we probably will not join CPTPP if the Chinese join that as well. Um, so once you've got that sort of position built in, what will happen is that while China will continue to import, let's say, toys or fans or whatever, you will see a steady but slow decline in the relationship, economic relationship between India and China. Uh, And as I said, on the investment side is already pretty savage. Um, But I think this that but I'd say just this is important too because it's one of the key drivers of the quad and the new Western quad, or we don't have a name for it, the quad that India has developed with India, Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and the US, uh, which is that those critical technologies, which are being seen as the determinants for 21st century power, uh, if we are going to do these ex-China, then who do we do them with? And the obvious answer is the United States, uh, or technology places like, centers like Israel. So the Quad is not, as Quad keeps, leaders keep emphasizing, we're not a military organization. We are a technology organization. Um, we are about building alternative technology coalitions where the only key determinant is that China is not part of this. To deny China dominance in these spaces, or at least develop a sort of technology deterrence that we are none of us become dependent on China. Semiconductors, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, green hydrogen. Uh, go on. There's a huge list if you go, I think like 25 different technologies I counted last time, which the Quad is now doing. You're starting to see at least, Then now you go to the Western Quad, and you see that the same set of technologies, at least about half of them, are also embedded in that. Now that's that, interesting, is not an ex-China one. It's not about China. The UAE doesn't, and even Israel don't really have a problem with, with China. But they are trying to develop a similar set of technologies. And so India hedging not so much its geopolitical bets as much as its ge- geoeconomic bets by also building a relationship on the other side, on its western border, with a set of other countries, which are also about connectivity, technology, mobility. Um, and it's the UAE that in many ways is driving this. They are trying to build a post-you know, hydrocarbon economy. And they're saying we will be the singapore or the new york slash silicon valley of this part of the world we need india we need israel um, and <clears throat> quietly saudi arabia is part of this as well um and we'll see i think many others there are going to be other such coalitions uh coming up uh, i did an interview with our foreign minister dr Jai Shankar, in december and i said you, do you have any more of such ideas and he says yes You'll see more such a, such bodies coming up, and it's because the sense that the technology is going to be is the big geopolitical issue of the future and who dominates these will eventually dominate the military economic and soft power spaces uh, of the, of the future
0: I fully agree on that I think and and the UAE's play yeah, on this including Saudis play on this is super fascinating and I think they're leveraging sort of you know, the approach with Israel, which is new, but the historic relationship with India, recognizing its engineering talent and the capabilities that that talent brings to the table to sort of amplify their own ambitions. And I think we're seeing uh, the emergence of a very different sort of relationship between South Asia and the Middle East or the Gulf, so to speak. Um, And and it will be interesting to see how that shapes up in the coming years. Um, All of that, particularly the approach to the US, of course, is causing a lot of talk about India's relations with Russia, Um, a historical strategic partner, um, lots of military, historical military hardware coming from Russia, a relationship that goes back decades, Um, and the Russia-Ukraine crisis has sort of brought everything in the forefront, not only in the sense that, hey, you know, you're know, you now with the United States and Russia's doing this stuff in Europe, but also there are economic risks for India, right? Oil being a key part, but I was reading yesterday, how even sunflower oil, which comes from yes. Ukraine, um, there's a risk there as well. How do you see that India navigating this sort of, you know, once again, uh, war of words, heating up of the situation, going towards a military confrontation between NATO and Russia?
1: Well, India always argued to the West uh, that isolating Russia, sanctioning Russia is not going to get you anywhere uh, other than driving Russia into China's hands. Uh, that's fallen on deaf ears. There's been nothing much we could do about it. Uh, I think Indian government now, when you talk to them, they sort of shrug their shoulders. But their, their view is that Russia, Russia is now an economy that's only half the size of India's. Um, or if you want, it's about the size of the state of Texas. Uh, but it still has a, has a deep sense of grievance uh, that it was a former superpower. Uh, as you said, we have a historical relationship, uh, especially in the military side, about still to this day, about 65 to 70% of our hardware remains Russian. Um, and it's only gradually that number is is, is falling. Russia gives us a good deal on oil and gas. We invest a lot in oil, Russian oil and gas fields. And as a consequence, actually pay for a lot of our weapon systems from the profits we make from those. Um, and Russia helps us in many things, but it will not help us against China in the sense that when it's India versus China in a diplomatic scenario, we know that we can't depend on Russia. Russia publicly says we don't want to choose between the two of you. And Russia is happy to sell weapons to both of us. I mean, Ladakh, you have two fleets of two, you know, uh, air fleets of Sukhois facing each other, and Russia happily makes money from both of us. So that's, you know, that it perfectly fits with their their own lifestyle. So we maintain that relationship, but it's a declining relationship. It's a slow relationship that's declining, uh, and it's because it doesn't. Russia doesn't contribute to a lot of those future programs that I'm talking about. Russia is not a technology player in the digital space outside of Russia, right? It has a, its own indigenous digital uh, companies, but it doesn't have the capacity or willingness to export them or work with other countries. They don't deal with anything us on anything. They're almost, the economic relationship is almost only G to G. No private sector Indian companies bother to go there The Confederation of Indian Industries, the largest chamber of commerce in India, actually shut its Moscow office down several years because of a lack of interest. There's no person-to-person, people-to-people exchange between the two countries. Russia, When my my newspaper used to take polls of of Indian readers, what countries interest you the most, Russia barely got like one or two percent. There was some, we most Indian newspapers no longer have Moscow correspondents because they find the readers don't are not interested. So it's a relationship that is it is not a hostile relationship. We don't have anything against each other, but it's a relationship that's slowly declining because it doesn't have the substance that's driving a lot of our other relationships. Simply not there. Um, but we continue, the Indian government continues to believe, one, we still need them for a number of things. We don't have any reasons to be angry about them about anything. They've never done anything, quote, against us, if you wish. Um, we don't like their relationship with China, but they themselves spend a little time trying to keep an equidistant, if you wish, between India and China. Uh, Ukraine, as you mentioned, Sunflower seeds is about the only strategic interest India has in the Ukraine, and it's not a strategic interest. It's a very minor interest. We import a certain amount of Russian um, uh, sort of uh, Soviet era military equipment from the Ukraine. So our Antonov transports engines come from the Ukraine. Uh, some of our air-to-air missiles for our Sukhois, come from the Ukraine. Naval turbines from the Ukraine, uh, but none of that is really that big. I mean, it's like one turbine every few years or something like that. Um, so India looked at the Ukraine and said, "We don't really, we don't have a dog in this fight. We don't get anything out of it. We have no relationship with Ukraine." So I know in the Atlantic. Ukraine is page one. In India, it's page 10. Um, and there's, you know, when I've talked, I was talking to an Indian diplomat, I said, you know, what do you think about Ukraine? He says, I don't think about it at all. We, we, for us, it's, it, you know, I think for India, it's, it's like saying, are you concerned about a conflict between Mexico and Guatemala? And the answer is no. It just doesn't really matter to us. And I think there's a very strict policy on the Indian side. We are not going, you know, at the Quad summit, the foreign ministers, not summit, the foreign ministers meeting, India and Japan, my understanding, were pushed very hard that there should be no language on Ukraine. They said it's an Indo-Pacific organization. It's still a nascent organization. So going off and, you know, uh, what was John Quincy Adams' line, uh, chasing, drag- fighting dragons, uh, you know, in far off places, makes no sense for the Quad. Um, so it was left to australia and america to make their own sort of independent positions on the ukraine but indo the quad is about china and let's keep it up there that's a big enough dragon to take on
0: well speaking of sort of the decline um, on the russian relationship uh, in terms of where it's headed you know that obviously on the pakistani side has created this opportunity or opening where prime minister khan is going or planning to go to moscow and Just like, you know, as you said, the Russians are open to selling weapons to both China and India. There have been reports a few years ago about Pakistan buying some gunships, which the Americans were unwilling to provide. And really from some conversations I've had, one of the main reasons why Pakistan is sort of beginning to warm up to Russia is for that need of military hardware, which it feels that they're getting some from the Chinese, but they could get some more stuff from the Russians. Um, Russia has also talked about building a gas pipeline, and investing in sort of developing the gas ecosystem in India, in Pakistan. We'll see where all of that goes. But I think there is like this shift again happening in, in sort of the geopolitics of the subcontinent where India may be sort of, you know, balancing or moving slightly away from Russia on the new economy or new technology stuff. And Pakistan senses that, hey, we may have a new partner here which will be interesting to see but i want to spend the last few minutes of this discussion on where you see things going on with pakistan as you said prime minister modi made a big sort of investment in personal relations with she he made a similar one with nawaz sharif and nawaz was in power right and there was a you know he came to lahore etc but it didn't work out and since then we've seen uh, a ratcheting up of tensions, especially with Imran Khan coming to power, but Khan himself, when he came to power, famously said that if India takes one step, we will take two, but nothing really has come of it beyond the, every few months we hear reports that there's some back channel talks going on. <clears throat> and then of course, the Kashmir situation developed, surgical strikes, et cetera. Um, wh- what's your sense of where this relationship is and what's the, what's the view in Delhi about how to approach Pakistan if
1: at all? yeah, I think Modi represented a growing school of thinking in India, which was that uh, trying to trying to work out um, a a deal with Pakistan, which largely consisted of getting Pakistan to agree to to find a a degree of autonomy or a political settlement in Kashmir uh, that would be acceptable to Pakistan and then open the door for a normalization of relations. Uh, that's a school of thinking that was developing that this was proving to be pointless exercise. Uh, that one, every time India and the two countries had come to close to an agreement, whether it was the original Lahore peace, uh, peace attempt, uh, then uh, the deal that Musharraf came to with uh, Manwan Singh, internal problems in Pakistan tended to see that that collapsed. Uh, Musharraf sabotaged Nawaz Sharif's Lahore uh, proposals. He then fell apart because of his own domestic problems. Uh, and was this was this worth it? Uh, was basically the school of thinking that was rising that maybe given on, on I think, and also another fundamental issue was that the growing divergence in economic power between India and Pakistan, that was very evident. It's now stunningly huge. I mean, Pakistan's GDP is effectively smaller than the city of Mumbai, um, uh, made the school argument. uh, Why are we bothering uh, to continue to expend so much political capital? Because each time we do this, each prime minister who invested in a peace process, when that fell apart, he came out really damaged. Manmohan Singh was, was, was crippled by his attempts to deal with Pakistan. Uh, Vajpayee, it may not have been the only reason, but one key reason that he lost his re election bid was that his own party refused to back him. A large chunk of BJP supporters just said, forget it, we're not dealing with this guy who spends his time wooing Pakistan Pakistani leaders who we can't stand. Um, so you have. Um, so Modi comes to power, and he is, I think, much more, and he's very much a post-partition leader. He doesn't have any memories or concerns or interests in Pakistan, uh, definitely nothing like a sentiment that, let's say, Amman Singh had, or even an interest in, in, let's say, Urdu and so on, that, let's say, Vajpayee did. And he comes in and says, for me, Pakistan is just a troublesome neighbor. Do I deal with them or not? I don't know. We'll see. But I'm not going to invest beyond a certain point in this relationship. Um, Now, so when he met Nawaz Sharif, however, he was surprised, I think, I would argue, that Nawaz, in private actually, seemed quite a reasonable person. And he had a vision of the Indo-Pakistan relationship, especially on trade, investment, and so on, that appealed to to Modi. But what I understand is that when they, uh, they began meeting repeatedly, and at the end of it, Modi was like, I like this guy. Uh, but Nawaz would also admit, I have no power on the Indo relationship. The military decide everything. So you and I can keep meeting and doing photo ops, but that's it. Um, so Modi was like, OK, that's fine. And, and I gather one of the instructions he lays sent down to his, to his foreign ministry and to his government. Nobody criticizes now my friend Nawaz. You can criticize Pakistan, but not the prime minister, because I like this guy. And maybe, who knows, something may happen with him. Then, of course, Nawaz fell from power anyway. Uh, But I think the bigger shift, of course, was that in 2016, India concluded uh, on its own internal assessments that what was happening in Kashmir um, was that Pakistan was no longer, let's put it this way, the um, the Kashmiri movement in the valley, was no longer looking to Pakistan. They were interested in independence or autonomy, but they no longer saw Pakistan as part of the equation, which meant that your original policy of trying to come to an agreement with Pakistan had become irrelevant. So then what path do you take? Do you then do a unilateral autonomous political settlement in in Kashmir? Or do you do, which is what Modi decided to do, is you abrogate Article 370 altogether and then begin a forcible process of telling Kashmiris, you have no choice. You have to become a normal part of India. So he decided, on obviously, on the second path, which, of course, then made it more or less impossible, I would argue, for Imran or any other government in Pakistan, at least for the time being, to come to any kind of agreement. Imran, from my understanding, was that the Indian system did not see him as hostile to India, but they saw him as even weaker than Nawaz Sharif, that his, the degree of political agency he had uh, and independence in the military was even smaller. So therefore, the question is, well, why do we invest in this relationship? Imran, I think you probably also agree, is a slightly erratic individual. Uh, and therefore, this also strengthened the view Modi as you said, uh, Modi is, is, is very business-like in his meetings. He comes in without any specific personal likes or dislikes, but he says, I have this agenda. You want to fit this? Well, how do you fit into my agenda? If you don't fit into my agenda, it's a nice meeting. You're goodbye. I'm leaving. Um, and Imran didn't fit into that agenda at all. Pakistan doesn't fit into that agenda. Imran definitely doesn't, because Imran doesn't have anything in his view to offer. So I don't think it's a personal hostility to Imran. He just doesn't see what's the point. Uh, and until he thinks that he has a leader in Pakistan that he can work with, he doesn't see any reason to do so. So his policy, therefore, I would argue with Pakistan, has now shrunk to a simple one. I'm going to do what I want to do with Kashmir, and I'm going to do whatever I feel with other countries. And you're now too small uh, to be an issue. And you're too isolated. I mean, one of the key things that happened after the Balakot bombing was that Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, two of your Pakistan's traditional allies, both said we actually were with India on this, because India gives us more for our economic future and our geopolitical future than Pakistan does. And even China was like, yeah, you two go settle this on your own, because we find this very just troublesome to deal with. We don't understand this stuff. So... Everyone looked at the Pakistan and said, where are your friends in all of this? Nobody. Um, so for Ind- Modi's, Modi's like, I don't have to deal with Pakistan. And maybe one day they get a leader who I can deal with. But I don't see why I have to invest in this guy anymore or in this relationship. I wasn't investing very much. Now there's even less reason for me to do so. My only policy is simple. If there's a terrorist strike on Indian soil, I will hit Pakistan hard. And that's exactly what happened at Balakuk. And now, since then, there has been no major terrorist attack. So India, for Modi's so policy, works. Um, I don't have anybody to talk to in Pakistan, but they have a—they they used to have the capacity to, to hurt me. I've shown that if, you, if I hurt you back, nobody supports you in the world. So end of story. So that's basically, I would argue, is where the Indo-Pakistan relationship lies. And then what I've heard is that the Pakistan relationship, the file, doesn't even go to the foreign ministry of India anymore. It goes to the national security advisor. It's treated as a security problem, but not a foreign policy issue.
0: That's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that view out of Delhi. I think on the sort of surgical strikes, we could spend a lot more time in terms of my view, at least on this from a national security point of view, is that Modi and successive prime ministers after him will find themselves tied into this escalation ladder problem, which is a risk from a regional perspective. And, a, you know, it two nuclear armed powers going into this escalation ladder is scary, at least in my mind. Um, and I, you might feel the same way, but that's a topic for another day. Um, this has been a fascinating discussion in terms of understanding both domestic and foreign policy developments out of India and what the Indian view is. So thank you so much. For taking out the time. Before I let you go, um, I might put you on the spot here, but I put all my guests on the spot in terms of any book recommendations that you may have, a couple of books um, that you recommend people pick up and read can be on any topic, foreign policy, domestic politics, etc. But it's something that I always ask my guests, so would love your recommendations as well. Let's
1: well, say two books um, that I've that recently i read. I have to admit, I'm far behind on my reading. So it's a sad story on that front. Um, but I think uh, Nalin Mehta's book, The New BJP, uh, is a good um, book in explaining the social basis for the new BJP. As I mentioned, the rise of the OBCs um, and the change and how a lot of the Hindutva or the political narrative of the BJP derives all the way back to their experiences of the Jansang in the 1950s and the internal battles they had with them, with them and against the Congress. That the Congress, you know, purged right-wing thinkers from the universities. They went after right-wing journalists in India, and they feel that they're just giving that back. That What they suffered effectively is what is giving them back. But the real rise of this new social, <coughs> social agenda um, within the BJP, um, which is which would be historically transformational if it was ever able to actually succeed in in undermining the caste structure uh, of India, which remains continues to be in many ways a, a major problem in the country. Not only because of what it does to Hindus, but as you know, it also is a Muslim issue. Um, <clears throat> even Christians in India have, have caste. Um, um, I was talking to recently a, a, an in prominent Indian Muslim politician, who had been to to UP, and I said, so will the BJP see? Will Samajwadi be seeing this giant Muslim consolidation that took place, for example, in West Bengal and helped defeat the BJP? And he says, no. He says the Siddiqis, the Manzurs, the Pasmandas, the Ashrafi Muslims, all fighting with each other, just continue their internal Muslim Divide, uh, let alone the Shia-Sunni ones, are simply still too strong. Um, But this this book I thought was one of the first good books uh, in attempting to do so. I've seen some books by Western writers on this, and to be fair, I don't think they catch. They it's it's a difficult uh, thing to understand, uh, and I don't think they catch it. This is a good one by an Indian journalist, and I think the first one that really comes out. I think he underplays. or avoids trying to look at the anti-Muslim sentiment that drives a large portion of Hindutva, a large part of it. But on the other social ideas, I think he gets that right. The other book I'd recommend, and maybe something, it's an older book, but it's one that I'd recommend with a twist, which is Jaishankar, Dr. Shankar's own book on Indian foreign policy. Um, and the key point to remember about this book and I remember the discussion with some one of his publishers, HarperCollins, said that the original draft of the book was written before he became foreign minister. Um, and from what I've heard, this book waters down the anti-China sentiment in the original draft, because as a foreign minister, you can't say certain things. But it's important to realize that if you throw that in to what you read, you'll get a very good sense of what the government of foreign policy of of india is presently driven by
0: thank you so much for those recommendations um an interesting anecdote on the, um, the shankar book because i think that that then changes the way a reader might approach that book in the sense that you know it gives a lens into what's on paper but also a lens into what the foreign minister himself actually may think about china and then you know developments obviously provide some evidence to that Um, but thank you so much for taking out the time. This has been a wonderful conversation, a whirlwind tour of what's going on in India. So I appreciate you joining us and I found this discussion very valuable and insightful. And I think... Our audience will be as well. And maybe we'll have you back on, uh, perhaps if there is some major breakthrough on the India-Pakistan side, maybe unlikely, or as the general elections near in India and sort of get a sense of where the BJP and politics and foreign policy is. But thank you so much and have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Bye.